Welcome to Cross of Gold, the podcast where two brothers, one a Christian in the political wilderness and the other a socialist in the spiritual wilderness, work to rediscover faith in each other, our communities, and the American experiment. We have begged and they have walked when our calamity came. We beg no longer, we defy them. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. Hello and welcome back to Cross of Gold. I'm your host, Cyrus, the socialist brother, joined by my co-host, Chase, the Christian brother. How are we doing oh. today, Chase? I like introducing myself. Leave it to a socialist to uh, <laughs> share the responsibility of leadership. Hmm. Mm, hey, well, just I'm trying to look out for you a little bit. I appreciate you. Yeah, I'm excited about Russ part two. We have a lot to get into in the outro. Give us our lead in. Yeah. So first, you know, in this episode, we talk a lot about a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, which is labor politics, organizing labor to form unions, secure protections for workers, which is something that's uh, Russ's specialty. So I'm glad we covered a lot of that. And we will definitely get into some of our you know, common points of conflict between capitalists, non-capitalists, Christians, and non-Christians about that, that sort of topic. But we also get into a lot of, a lot of spiritual talk as well, you know, stuff that was more in the abstract and, uh, and metaphysical for me. Uh, And because of that, yeah, I've requested, we have a episode. Our next one is just Cyrus and I really digging into uh, the spiritual, and I wouldn't call it abstract, but personal uh, nature of some of that. Yeah. So that being said, uh, we won't waste any more of your time. We'll get straight into Russ part two, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Russ, as we're getting started here, can you summarize what labor or material politics is? A lot of this experience that you've had with unions and what, what do you think it, in a couple sentences it's about? Sure. Fundamentally, Labor means workers, the people who work, the people who make the society run, whether that's caring for children or manufacturing widgets or driving buses or whatever the case may be. The labor movement is about putting power in those people's hands so that we can make the decisions about the society that we build and make run. And labor politics is about that in the political arena, fighting for and winning reforms that make working class people's and everybody's lives better um, but allowing workers to have decision-making power over what happens in, in our wider world. I don't mean to oversimplify this, but it's not just making it hard to fire bad workers or, or something like that. Right. I mean, if you've ever worked with someone who's not good at their job, you not if you've ever managed someone who's not good at their job, because that's also awful, I'm sure. But if you've <laughs> ever worked alongside someone who's not good at their job, you know that's not a good experience. If you, you know, get workers together collectively, like the top thing, you know, on anyone's list is not going to be like, make it impossible to fire people who don't do their job, right? <laughs> but at the same time, if you've ever worked for someone who will fire someone because they didn't sleep with them or who will fire someone because they don't like them or because, you know, they took sick days when they were sick, That's also a real thing. And so what I would say unions are about is making it so to fire someone, you have to go through proper steps to show that whatever you're firing them for is a legitimate reason to fire them, that what you're saying happened really happened, and that people got a second chance to like be able to do a better job and like learn because people aren't born knowing how to do their jobs. So I understand you to say labor politics in a real layman's way is about job security and an economic sharing of the profit that comes from business. Sure. And I think that it actually makes me think, I think in a lot of ways, to put it in sort of Christian terms, if you think about the tradition of the prophets in the Old Testament, who were going to their society and saying, look how we've turned against God. Look how we've turned against the way that God wants us to live and are kind of shouting against that. And you look at Jesus and in his life, the way that he turned against, um, you know, the Roman empire and the ways in which the Pharisees and like the priestly ruling class of his society were, 
you know, misusing religion to try to keep people down. If you look at that and then you look at many people who follow that tradition, look at our society today and say, wow, this capitalist society is immoral. It, you know, it allows some people to live lazy, owning things, profiting off work they don't do, and other people to work for their entire lives and to injure themselves and be in unsafe conditions and get paid next to nothing. And that is immoral. And so I actually think that there's like an important tradition within Christianity of Christians, um, you know, who have looked at that and said, you know, in the, in the capitalist era and said, you know, with that sort of prophetic truth, like this is wrong. I think of um, Martin Luther King is probably one of the most famous Christians in the United States. He, you know, lost his life in Memphis, Tennessee, because he was there to help sanitation workers in that city to form a union for the first time. That's where he was assassinated, what he was doing when he was assassinated. And throughout his work, he always was working in support of the kind of anti-racist unions that I mentioned before, um, sometimes maybe imperfectly anti-racist unions, but that were trying to win better conditions for black and white workers. And I think that you could look at also less well-known figures like A.J. Musty, um, who was a um, Christian preacher in the early 19th century when capitalism was kind of like emerging in the form that we see now, who he was, um, he's originally from Michigan. Um, he lived in a couple different places, but he, he took a, a congregation in Massachusetts uh, around, I don't know, like at the beginning of the 20th century, right when textile workers in early factories in Massachusetts were starting to form their first unions and go on strike. And he would like be on those, you know, picket lines with those striking workers would get beaten by the police alongside those workers would get arrested and became a spokesperson for them because he could not abide that his society would treat people in this deeply immoral way. It was so clear for him to see. You mentioned old Testament prophets as well as Jesus. And it's been on my mind just since you started talking unions um, for my Christian brothers and sisters out there. And then I'll know this is Old Testament, but I think there's some principles that get laid down here that we really have to prayerfully consider if we're going to just completely dismiss labor or uh, politics. If you just uh, take a piece and I'm going to summarize and just paraphrase a couple of verses out of Isaiah 58, but it's pretty in context. They, the nation of Israel. Seek me day after day and delight to know my ways, like a nation that does what is right. Skipping a few verses. And he, but look, you do as you please on the day of, you, of your fast, and you oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist, a.k.a. they were abusing particularly the foreign workers. They would take Sabbath and fast, but not their foreign workers. And then he skips down. Isn't this the fast I choose? to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your home, to clothe the naked when you see him and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? So I think what you're saying is not unbiblical. And to use a double negative to soften the blow to some of my Christian brothers and sisters, yeah, yeah we really got to consider <laughs> what you're saying. And what you're saying is biblical is what I mean to say. And we can argue maybe about the application of it, but if workers are claiming oppression, God seems to care a whole lot about the orphan, the widow and the worker who is oppressed. So we ought to. Well, thanks Chase. I really appreciate that. I, I I'm honored that you would say that what I'm saying is biblical because I, <laughs> no, I, I really am. Like yeah. I, I, I like, I, I'm still a new Christian um, in a lot of ways. Um, I, I was only baptized actually in 2019 um, because it took me that long and to actually find a, a sort of like a church home that felt right to me. Um, but, and so I'm still really in a process of like learning scripture, developing my own practice of prayer and all that um, much, much more so. And I really appreciate people who are like, have been Christians longer than I, who have these perspectives and, and I'm trying to be biblical in what I'm saying. Um, and I appreciate you affirming that, that it is. Yeah. And to, 
I appreciate you saying that God's good. Let's keep it that way. And what's got me to this point of genuine exploration and interest is I think the conviction of the Holy spirit, certainly conversations with Cyrus to go, wait a second. Like, am I idolizing worshiping and finding my own identity out of the political party I've followed or, you know, what, um, going along with the tide. These are all things, uh, God through the prophets or Jesus does not tolerate. In fact, it makes him quite angry. So it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's worth a genuine consideration and making sure that like, I'm not a product of an evil culture or in my environment or my generation. Want to change in directions and pivot on something that's been gnawing at me core to disagreements between Cyrus and I just socialism be capitalism. I, as a Christian, have a somewhat bleak outlook on the human heart because I know my own. I think I am depraved and I've got good parts about me, but most of those good parts come from God and and certainly have been brought out through my experience with Jesus. And it seems like socialism, this cooperate and graduate type of worker mentality um, sounds good, but it neglects to think about like how sometimes people don't want to work or people are lazy or whatever. And, and that's at least what's been sold to me about socialism. Ultimately, Cyrus has said in the past, yes, for a, a broad adoption of socialism, there needs to be an elevation of human consciousness where we all are not necessarily just concerned with how much money we make, but the welfare of our neighbors. And I am curious about that because I'm slightly in disbelief about how much our human consciousness has actually evolved, especially if you just put some people without power or food, they get to be, they'll go back a couple of millennia really quick. And two, I'm really interested in the infusion of Jesus because man, just for my own life, my all maturities and the things I strive to and be better for, I need God's help with. And Jesus is, you know, in, in my life. So I'm just really interested in, um, can there, can there be a human elevation of human consciousness? So this is one of the things that I think I've struggled with somewhat as a new Christian. And I think one of the reasons that it took me a long time to actually like, you know, say those words for moments and say like, I am a sinner. Jesus died for my sins, rose from the dead. He, you know, and, and, and like he, he can also help raise me from the dead and save me. Um, Because I felt for a long time, like, you know, yeah, I've done bad things. Yeah, I've made mistakes. But like, am I a sinner? You know what I mean? Like, I think for a long time, I sort of felt like, well, there's lots of people who are worse than me. (laughs) Um, And I think that like, and I also think that I have a really positive view of human beings. um, Because I've had a lot of really positive experiences with human beings. But I think that I agree with you that, um, in a way, I think it's also undeniable that human beings are capable of just almost unfathomable cruelty. You look at genocide, you look at, you know, child abuse, you look at like, I mean, there's go on and on, right? Like there's some really awful dark stuff that human beings have done. I think for some people, that's why they like don't believe in God. Cause they're like, how could God let us do this stuff? Sure. And I, and I think that like, for me, I think it's both. I think that it is within all of us, we have an immense potential for evil. Um, and I just think you can't look at human history and not see that. Um, I also think that we have an immense potential for good. And I think that comes from God. Um, and I think that um, I think that one of the ways that I think about Christianity and the, and the fact that we are sinners is like, God knows that we're human and that we're fallible. Like that's why, you know, he laid out uh, like the commandments for us um, and, and all of these expectations, but recognizing that we would fail in certain ways and need to be saved. Um, and that like, that's where Jesus comes in is like this enormous forgiveness that God is willing to like have his son and, and part of himself um, be on earth and suffer and like live just how awful it really can be and how miserable it can be to be a human being and to be, you know, scorned and tortured to death on the cross, that sacrifice so that we can all be free of the kind of consequences of our sins, at least in the divine way. 
but we're not free from the consequences of our sins in a human and material and physical way. Because like, if you sin, bad things happen to you. Like, and you know, maybe not maybe as, a, as a country sins or as a group of people sin, there may be collateral damage or consequences. Absolutely. And so to me, I actually think that, um, to me, I think that a lot of what socialism is about, I actually am going to kind of disagree a little bit with Cyrus. I don't think that it is, it, it's like relies on a change in human consciousness exactly. I think it relies on a change in human structures and social structures so that we can create social structures that emphasize and bring out what's already good about human beings um, and that can like push away what's bad um, about human beings. And I think that like, you know, God has a complicated plan for us. And I think that part of how his plan may play out is on a global and geopolitical scale, the creation of better social structures that allow more human beings to live in loving kindness together. Um, And that might, you know, I don't know. I like, I don't know how that's going to work, but I think that there are like good things about human beings that you see throughout human history of like, you know, mutual care and mutual aid and, and, and mutual support and caring and courage and solidarity that I think we could create better social structures that encourage those things and discourage brutality, dishonesty, greed, cruelty, you know, all of these things that we can all agree are sinful and evil, um, but that are certainly within human capacity. Yeah, yeah, if I can uh, add on to that a little, Russ, I don't think we're actually too far apart on that. Just to clarify, I guess what I what I mean by that is is similarly to you know what you mean by structures. You know, like the human consciousness was fundamentally different during under feudalism. Like our relations to each other were fundamentally different. The way we thought about the world and about I mean, I wasn't there, but I think I don't think it's it's unfair to say that people living in hamlets in in northern France or or whales or whatever, you know, fundamentally understood the world and their place in it and how they should interact with it differently than we do today. And then when things like noble rights and feudal privileges were taken away, things like democracy and, and capitalism and Protestantism were brought in, you know, and taken out the structures of the Catholic church, then it becomes a more liberal mind. Like people not think of themselves differently. They don't think of themselves in the same way as part of a community. And similarly to what we can do today now, I think is like, now we have that liberal subject, um, that individual, but I think that the struggle of our time is to bring all those individuals back into a larger, more knit community. Um, and I think, like you said, it's, that has to be done through structures, you know, like capitalism is a system that incentivizes selfish ambition. It just does. And I don't think that's the best way to bring people together. Cyrus, so if I'm understanding you correctly, and I'm taking what Russ said, the change in consciousness pretty much coincides with the change in structure. And I guess I could buy that. You know what, if I'm in a completely different, I mean, with the internet, I might, you might agree that that's a somewhat pseudo structure change. And then we have a consciousness change of that because we have so much access to information, these sort of things. Yeah, it's um, sort of just like one step at a yeah. time. You know? Yeah, and I guess I would also add in, I mean, I think it sort of depends on what you mean by like change in consciousness. But one thing that I do know that I've seen and experienced in my own life is that people can be changed by powerful forces. And I think God changes people. Um, So, I mean, that's one thing. But I also think that being in collective struggle changes people. Um, The, this is a sort of, and this is sort of a weird (laughs) fact, but before the UAW organized the auto plants in Detroit in the 1930s, the largest organization in those auto plants was um, a, sort of like a small offshoot of the KKK. I think there were like there was like a huge, extreme, you know, like racist group that lots of people were part of in in those auto plants. A lot of white people were part of in those in those auto plants, and then just years later, tons of those people were alongside black workers in a you know, socialist led union fighting shoulder to shoulder against their bosses for all of their well-being. And I think that like, I believe in the power of God and of community and of collective struggle to 
uproot racism out of people's minds and souls. Um, and, you know, and also imperialism and sexism and greed and, you know, all of these kinds of things. Um, and I think that like, that's something that we have to also see as part of how human beings live and change over time. Oh, Russ, you're saying some, you're laying it down right now. I don't want to put words in Cyrus's mouth again, but I will. And he had said that, uh, before maybe you just freaking say it, the kingdom of God and the socialists want to bring it now. Well, what I'll say is that from my perspective, you know, the primary difference between Christians and socialists who are not, you know, one or the other or who are one or the other is that Christians think of, you know, arriving at the kingdom of heaven at some point. There is a kingdom of heaven waiting for them on the other end of this life. And that is, you know, how they salvage, how the poor and oppressed and vulnerable and marginalized, you know, deal with being that is the promise of a reward after all their work. Uh, what I think socialists and materialists say is like, okay, that's fine. You know, like I, I can understand wanting that, but in the meantime, can we get that here too? Like, do we have to rely on the possibility that that could happen or can we try and make work, you know, work towards building the kingdom of heaven on earth? Um, I, 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 okay. So I, I'm challenged by that statement because I know, and I've come from and been mentored by disciple by folks who believe that sin is a barrier that cannot be um, surpassed or overcome organizationally on this side of the earth. I do know one of my life verses that really grabbed me when I was actually reading Rand and she was about to probably take me away from my faith at some point was Jesus in John 17 about to get taken up by the Romans and really go through a lot of that persecution and said like, this is eternal life that you know, the one true God and the one he sent Jesus Christ. And that was super Eastern and very present of G for Jesus to say, oh, wait a second. One of Rand's biggest objections was the greatest benefit to your faith comes after death. Sort of what you're saying, like we'll arrive at the kingdom of heaven. Then Jesus is saying like, sensibly, heaven can start now. It's to know God and Jesus Christ, which you can do in heaven, but you can also do in this life. And so that was a, as an epiphany moment. I just don't know yet. And I'm not trying to drag my feet here. But what Russ is saying and what you're saying, so long as we're, we're targeting people's human hearts, you might have me on why can't we do that a little bit more politically and just and really care about the wealth inequality, that sort of thing. So I'm challenged. Then Russ, so maybe this, this drives me to one of my final questions that I'm, I'm, I'm curious about. And back to my unicorn observation at the beginning, I see a lot of Christians that quickly dismiss material or labor politics either because of, you know, horror stories they've heard from some union or because of, you know, the, the, the homeless people that they think are lazy or whatever. I've seen socialists write off Jesus for myriad reasons. How do we get Christians more exposed and open to material labor politics and or get more socialists exposed and interested in Jesus? Yeah, great question. And I think that there, I think that there's actually a tradition that, and we could speculate about why, why this is, that's not known enough um, that really has done that. And I think it's, it's looked different ways in different places, but, you know, whether it is someone like A.J. Musty, who was, a, you know, a Protestant preacher who became a leader in textile workers unions and actually went on to found a bunch of labor institutions that, you know, were crucially important in like forming labor as it exists today. Um, or Martin Luther King and other leaders during the civil rights movement who like understood their Christian um, faith to obligate them to do work in the world for justice and including alongside workers organizing on the job to within the Catholic church, um, the Catholic worker movement, which is, you know, long established um, here in the United States of um, basically, you know, devout Catholics who do work with the poor and, you know, including around unions. Um, and, you know, and that's even more developed in some other countries. Um, you know, we don't have time to get into it, but like people should definitely look into liberation theology um, in Latin America to the Catholic labor movement in France which is a whole like world of study by itself. 
But there are many, many, many people in the Christian tradition who have looked at what Jesus is saying um, and have looked, you know, looked inward and, you know, listened for, you know, God's guidance and looked outward at the capitalist world that they live in and said, how can I live my faith other than to organize alongside um, the working class? And I think that is a strong tradition, you know, especially among oppressed Christians, especially among, um, you know, the Catholic church, uh, among immigrant groups um, in, you know, colonized countries, and then among black Americans within the Protestant tradition in this country, because of course the black church was the only institution that black people controlled um, themselves, you know, through enslavement um, and, you know, and subsequently, and, you know, that has mostly been the case in U S history is like the black church has been one of the few institutions that took black people seriously. That, and that was like controlled by black people because of the incredible racism of our country. Um, and I think that like, there've been tight connections between um, basically oppressed people's churches and oppressed people's Christianity and worker movements, um, you know, across countries, across time. Um, and I think that that is, you know, it's, it's, it's on us as Christians to, to like learn about that tradition. And it's on socialists too. I, I think socialists take this like little verse from our verse <laughs> um, <laughs> passage. From Might Mark, as well be. <laughs> um, this little passage from Marx. That's, uh, that's telling. Um, <laughs> oh, you know, it, funny criticism was, you know, what's a, I was talking to a group of elders in my church, uh, Bible study yeah. leaders, these sort of things. Uh, I'm, you know, doing this podcast with my brother is this secular socialist. And if someone blurted out basically like socialism is a godless religion and I had to think about it, but you know, th- anyway, keep going. There's that case you want to sit and taste it later. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so I think that there's, there's this passage from Marx where he says, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. Um, and he's writing the 19th century. And first of all, people don't include the like several sentences leading up to that, where he also says, um, religion is the heart of a heartless world uh, and a couple other very positive things. Um, and It's a necessary salve for right. the horrors of capitalism and, and of modern life. And the other thing that people don't realize, I think a lot of times when they quote that is like, Marx had a really limited experience of religion compared to what we see now. I mean, his, his experience of religion was basically like extremely sort of cold, institutionalized, co-opted churches of 19th century Europe, or like a very beaten down sort of form of Judaism um, that like was under constant attack. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was kind of like it, you know what I mean? He did not have contact with like what you're talking about, um, Chase of like, you know, Eastern religions. He also didn't get to see liberation theology, right? Like that came into being after he died. He didn't really get to see like, uh, the evangelical tradition in the United States. He didn't get to see the black church. He didn't get to see, like, I mean, he just really, he had a very limited, you know, view of, of, of what religion could be. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of us maybe would be similarly critical to like the narrow window of kind of religion that he was looking at, you know, uh, us Christians now. Um, and so I think that that's like an important thing to keep in mind for socialists. Like, you know, if you're sitting here and like your critique of religion is sort of based on the idea that like, yeah, really, like religion is really oppressive and it just distracts people from what they really need to do. And it is like, if, if that's your position, you really need to like take a much more thorough look at what religion is in the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, because it's like, certainly there's oppressive forms of religion. I don't think anyone would deny that. Um, certainly religion has been used to express um, bigotry, racism, sexism, homophobia, imperialism. Like we can all point to, you know, people who've used religion to justify unjust wars and all kinds of terrible social institutions. And like, if you are looking at religion and say, oh yeah, like that's what religion is. Well, that's like, by the same token, someone could say like, oh, well, is socialism just North Korea? You know, and I, I and like both positions would be equally unfair. Um, oh, that's great. So that helps yeah. a lot of people that are probably 
angry at socialism just in America right now <laughs> to say uh, Christianity is the opiate of the masses is as dumb and ignorant as saying socialism is North Korea, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I was even more directing it as socialists to say, hey, socialism right. is what religion really is. Well, you know, it's, it's a, think- spoken by a beautiful, beautifully by a socialist for us and just want to encourage anybody to red letter read the Bible. Boy, that's, I have had to do that twice in my journey with Christ to f- wait a second. Like, what's this about? Who is this all about? What's what's history all about? Yeah. So well, um, I, I, I feel like it. But go. No, I was just going to say, I feel like it really does all come back to, you know, collective action. Um, as, as Russ was saying, like that is how, in my opinion, you bring together these groups, you know, uh, to call out both Christians and socialists to make it fair. Like, I think on one side you have like, yeah, Christians, if you, if you want to, you know, uh, earn the trust of people who support material politics, like join us in the trenches. If your politics don't require you to sacrifice anything for the collective, then I think that's probably a biblical and not good for, for the community. Like, that, that those are both bad. Um, and similarly, you know, socialists, like we can't, I, I would say we, we would be missing out on a major um, opportunity uh, if we don't include welcome Christianity and other religions and religious backgrounds and faiths into the movement. Like it's critical. If you're a Marxist and materialist, which I do consider myself to be both of those things, you also have to understand that part of the, one of the material facts of the United States is that it's an extremely religious country. Um, and those things have to be, have to be brought you know, up. And I don't mean to speculate too, too much, but it's talks to the danger of cancel culture, just because if I am queasy on some of your social policy, um, you know, call it, uh, um, you know, reproductive rights, call it abortion. And because of that, like I'm canceled, you're missing out on someone who could be fervently for material labor policy if, you know, implemented well. Yeah, I one one other thing i just sort of feel like if we're talking about collective action i really you know i would be remiss if i didn't um make a plug for some types of collectivity that people could get involved in um yes. chase i really appreciated in one of the earlier episodes your emphasis on the idea that people need to join bible study groups and you know i felt like a real spiritual hunger until i actually joined a church and was able to like be with other believers like you know, learning and growing together. Um, I would say the same thing. So I, you know, would encourage, you know, Christians to join Bible study groups and churches and anybody check out a Bible study. Like that, group. Yeah. necessary. But what, um, what I would really also say is if you are listening to this podcast and you need help on your job um, because you don't have a union um, and you are not being treated fairly, I really recommend that people go to workerorganizing.org. And this is a joint project of the Democratic Socialists of America and the United Electric Workers Union, UE, um, to help workers across the country organize on their job to win protections, particularly during COVID. Um, So they've done, this just started, um, you know, in April of last year. Um, And this has been a space where if you're a worker, and your workplace um, is closed and you're not being fairly compensated or your workplace is open and it should be closed or your workplace is open but and it has to be open but you need better protections or any number of things like that, you should get in touch with folks um, because they will set you up with an experienced workplace organizer who can talk with you about what your options are, what your legal rights are, how to organize with your coworkers and literally thousands of workers across the country have been able to win things on their job by working with, um, with it's called the Emergency Work, Workplace Organizing Committee. Um, and the, the website to go to is workerorganizing.org. Um, it's easy to remember. So and I would we will definitely put that in the show notes so that anyone who wants to access that can reach out. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us either. And the other thing I would make a pitch for is one thing that I really like about DSA is that it has done a pretty good job, I think, of promoting the fact that there has always been a religious socialist tradition. Um, and you can learn a lot more about that um, by going to religioussocialism.org. So that's just the two words, religious, 
socialism.org. And they have their own podcast. Um, and they, you know, this is cross religion. So it's, you know, look at Islam, Judaism, Christianity, um, Hinduism, you know, all like, you know, other religions. Um, they look at history, they look at theory. There are religious socialist groups in a lot of DSA chapters around the country. Um, we had one in Boston and then it kind of like ran out of steam, but people are trying to get it going again. Um, and I really encourage people to look into that to like learn more about the fact that there really is a strong religious socialist tradition um, in the United States and around the world um, that, uh, you know. That, that, that yeah, the, these things are not as mutually exclusive as certain people would have you believe. And I think that, that there's a reason why certain people want those forces to be antagonistic to, towards each other. Um, and that's the same reason ruling classes always try to do that because divided is easier to fight than united. That's right. Um, so all that being said, uh, Russ, I know we have taken a ton of your time, but I really appreciate you coming on. It's been a super enlightening conversation. I think we, there's still a lot of, a lot of stuff we would, uh, love to cover with you, but in the meantime, I really appreciate you coming on and chase any other final thoughts. You spoke pretty convictingly um, as a, a genuine Christian who is trying to do what he thinks is right. And because of that, I've got to, I've got to chew on it. I got to pray on it, Russ. So thank you. Thanks, Chase. I really appreciate that. Well, Russ, I hope you have a great rest of your weekend and uh, thanks for coming in. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank all three of you. Thanks to all three of you. <sighs> wow. I don't know about you, Chase, but uh, my my wheels are still turning. Uh, steam coming out of my ears. A lot of a lot of thoughts happening. But I think overall, you know, I know where I stand on a lot of what he talked about. But looked over, oh, your mind is made up. Fear, is it? Confusion yeah. and hope simultaneously in your eyes. So we're we're we're. And what are you thinking? Yes, Iris. I I like Russ. I like where he's coming from. I'm confused about a lot of the applications of what he's saying, and I, I, I'm not trying to disguise disagreement with confusion, but with a lot of conflicting thoughts that I have. If I have to could summarize what he's saying, he's saying I think unions are good, and a collective struggle is good, even for the human heart. And if more people were to organize, particularly laborers, wage laborers, hourlies, low salaries, then they would share in much more of the fruits of their own labor than other people. And that unification and that sharing is uniquely Christian in Russ's eyes. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's easy to see, at least to me, I think he paints a really good picture of how unions and and the collective struggle is the most unifying thing that is out there, you know, uh, besides just the human condition, which I think is, you know, sort of what religion is getting at in terms of their seeking to unify people under one banner. But his collective struggle is seeking to unify people around the second, probably most common thing to everybody, which is the struggle for survival. Yeah, um, that's that's worth saying because it lays up where we're going to go in our next episode. The first collective struggle that we do in the body of Christ is against, I think, our own flesh and blood, our own sin and against evil. And that certainly is some bonding. There are also brothers and sisters. So it's not just against something. It's also for something in something of us. But to the point of laboring and unions, I think that's a, a fair summary. Yes, no. Yeah, I mean, I think that that fairly recaps uh, what, what Russ was trying to get at for sure. And, and I would largely, largely agree with with most of what he sure. said. I mean, there, there are we know you love Russ. Course, I got it. But... Yeah. <laughs> so I... Let me give you some other perspectives that I think have weighed on my mind, and then I'll try to end with mine. I'd love you to give me some feedback on these sure. because these are what's aiding my confusion. So dad, right, sitting around the fire with Papa Capo, we didn't get into unions, but man, dad was a tenure teamster, and we had tons of dinner table conversations about the impact of unions or, and some good and bad, because we moved a bunch, and we there was different kinds of unions he dealt with, and- a lot of times, though, the stories were from when he was in management and they were protecting from what seemed like either genuinely lazy or incompetent or even sometimes immoral workers. Right. And that was or that they were sometimes beyond uh, the 
business mind. That's a really poor way to say it, but they were beyond realize. Like they were asking for more than what was possible. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, like I, having heard that those stories from dad, you know, growing up, that was obviously sort of what we grew up with. It was not like a total aversion to unions. Cause like no. you said, and in fact, was yeah. union and he always, at least from what he told us, strove to work with them um, to the best of his ability. But, you know, also when you take someone who's been in the among the workers and move them up to management, they do see a different side of the business, Yeah, uh, which is like, oh, there are actual like a lot of financial impositions otherwise that, you know, they can't make work. But that's because I think they they're given this sort of set of conditions, which they view as static. Well, like there's nothing as a manager of a plant, there's nothing you can do to change a CEO's salary or to change the amount of middle managers between you and, you know, or change the amount your CEO spends on consulting firms or change the amount they give out as bonuses. Okay. But you can change, you know, the working conditions in your plant or the amount you give them. So it's, it is like a little bit more of, uh, I, I guess I see why, you know, people like you know, who are managers have that perspective, but it also, you know, leaves out a lot. Yeah, I think what you're saying is like a middle manager, dad, you know, being like someone over an operating plant has a concern, a care, a, a similar shared history with those folks, but that's not the board of directors and the people who are the capitalists in the situation. Because you, but you I just laid a lot of good questions up that I'm going to address with an Ayn Rand perspective. But let's close out dad. If I had to put it in a sentence, it would be unions can be good, necessary when management is bad. And yeah, so I think if I had a book and dad, that's what I would say. What'd you say? Yeah, would you agree? I, I would agree. I think that's definitely sort of the the perspective we were raised with. And there's a lot more we could get into about yeah. that in terms of what makes a manager good or not. And, you know, the, and how we should choose our managers and that sort of thing. But that's definitely his perspective. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned Ayn Rand, which uh, gives oh. me gives me a lot of hesitation to even ask you what you mean by that. But let's let's I, I assume by based on the look of your eyes, there's no getting out of it. So let's get into it. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be addressed because it's probably one of the best perspectives that is completely opposite of Russ and one of the most art- well articulated. You asked some questions or laid out some problems like who the plant manager can't control the CEO's salary or he might be able to have some um, impact on the workplace. She might be able to impact people's lives in personal ways. Rand asks, whose resources are they? And when I was still a devotee of hers, I argued against economics professors to the point of, man, blue in their face, because I just would just ask a simple question. So whose resources are the companies? Are they the workers or are they the like if if I came up with this ingenious idea, I took on the risk. I was able to find the funds or create the funds to invest in my idea. And I've created a bit of an intellectual property, right? A property, which is my idea. And I've hired people on a wage contract or any kind of contract that they've agreed to. And my idea has been become legalized in a, in a, in a corporation and it starts to um, create profit, then any kind of retained earnings beyond what I am paying out in labor or paying out in capital or expenses are the owners. And that, that origin idea is um, how our whole accounting system and our whole economic system, as, as you've said, is based. And so I just, I struggle with, with the, the ideological opposite of hers, which is, the idea and the ownership isn't the founder, the creator. It's everyone that the creator enlisted to work f- for her. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, I think that that question is the question. Who do the resources, who, who do the resources belong to? Because I, that to me is so counterintuitive to say that the people who currently hold it must des- hold that fully because of their own merit or because they deserve it or because it's actually, they're actually entitled to it. Like who owns a river? Who owns the oil that's beneath our feet? Who like, not to mention the fact that so many, like so much of the wealth in this country is inherited. I think like 40% of 
our country's wealth is inherited wealth. 85% of all the wealth in the country is either inherited or comes from property. Like these people who, like the capitalists who Ayn Rand refers to, the people who control the resources, where did they get it from in the first place? How did they get well, it? Well, so let me they answer that question. They didn't get it because through legal means, like- uh, they, they, Careful. Like in, in the UK, like they, that word capitalism really first took root. Like the people who own stuff are still the descendants of the aristocracy. Right. Uh, and, but we're- <laughs> Yes. And there are origins of us taking things either by thrift or grift or, you know, or war. However, and I don't want to completely gloss over that, but um, they're the producers. Like you've heard this phraseology, who is John Galt, right? And I think what it means if I had, it's a cry of hopelessness, maybe some apathy or despair when the producers the capitalists, and I don't mean just the owners of capitalists, I mean truly the producers in society stop producing. And like this collective inaction, which you and I know a lot of from being in the army of just like, wow, no one's going to take charge here. It gives way to a devolved commercial, even moral activity. So Rand was writing against, in 1957, she wrote, you know, probably her masterpiece, Atlas Shrugged. There's, there was too much regulation, really too much forced distributionalism and like a creativity theft that stripped the producers of their intellectual property. And she's sort of writing in an anti dystopia here, but that forced distributionalism stripped the rewards from the creative, um, their creative property. And like, what if those capitalists, and I don't mean the inherited wealth owners, I mean the creators, the, the pistons in the engine of the car of our economy just said, you know, no, I, I, I won't create. I'll just be a simple, you know, laborer. And I think she kind of creates the opposite end of Russ's ideological spectrum, which I think she has a point if it were to go to that point. Does that make sense? I, I guess I, that does make sense. I just think it's a total fantasy, like that there is a John Galt out there that is our CEOs and capitalists. Like, yeah, the, the, like the, yeah, there are definitely self-interested people who produce for their own their own work. But like the real producers in the economy, how are those not the people actually doing the labor? Those are the people who well, are the so, engine I mean, of the economy. It's, it's a bit of a law of supply and demand thing, right? Like so, there are a certain supply of laborers that can do like let's just say I'm going to use the perennial example of you know ditch diggers. The supply of ditch diggers is super high. And so anyone can offer that service, right? Whereas the supply of someone who's going to come up with an idea, call it Facebook, is lower. And the demand for Facebook is super high. So you have this demand of a unique resource brought to us. And that's what like, like literally our dollars, as Rand says, are little votes. We have free economic voting of, of value. Professional athletes get paid way more than teachers because we choose to watch professional athletes rather than reward teachers. Does that make sense? But I think that that conception of freedom is is the most limited thing about capitalism, which is under capitalism. Yeah, you're free, free to choose what you consume. Your freedom is entirely predicated upon your ability to choose things you want to buy, to consume, to wear in a marketplace. And I think that absolutely strips people of their humanity. Like you're saying. So first of all, real quick, for you, 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 I agree you, with you. I'm just, I'm just want to go and break it down point by point. Yeah. I do agree that capitalism gives us the freedom to consume. So, go ahead. Yeah, well, yeah, and I guess just what I would say in terms of the supply and demand of ditch diggers, ditch diggers example that you gave is that I think is a super good example of the way capitalism needs to work. They, there, it is. There has to be a bottom of the pyramid if that makes sense. There has to be a huge pool of workers who many of whom they, they assume will never work or not be able to work or be one of those discouraged workers that just, you know, collects welfare checks. That, that is part of the system. They need that reserve army of labor is what Marx calls it. Yeah, I know. I, I'm familiar with the Marx passage that says like you need a reserve army of labor to pay people super little and give them poor working conditions. But I, I, I don't. They, I don't think they need it for the same reason. Like no, but the thing is, is that the, 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 amount like production that, the amount of production that we do is not a production to meet everyone's needs. It's just to produce. 
there just needs what? to be more there needs to be more output the presiding the presiding rule law of capitalism is that there needs to be more output we could there there are tons of people that don't need to work as much as they do in this country I, that we can I, still meet all their needs I, I i disagree and we might need to organize the conversation in our next episode but i don't think the presiding law of capitalism is output it's um to maximize profit and, and governed in a marketplace that has some sort of bearing on supply and demand okay well then i'll just say what happens when output doesn't increase we go into a massive recession millions of people lose their jobs and houses oh uh, well lives. certainly i mean yeah based on like this like yeah yes modern I, I get, form of your, keynesian your... economics like we stimulate growth right and that gets people investing and consuming again you're right that the presiding law of capitalism is profit maximization, but that goes absolutely hand in hand with increased output. So it doesn't matter whether you're producing. I mean, it does matter whether you're producing efficiently, but it, what really matters is that you're producing more. So what I'm saying is, is like, yeah, there are a lot of extra workers that we don't really need in all sectors of the economy, like people like me who are overly educated. There's really not enough jobs for like, you know, educated people with humanities degrees, we just need somewhere to put them. So well, we, so, you know, so I mean, that would we put them into middle manager jobs at places like Salesforce or, or you know, well, <laughs> wherever else that would suggest that, like, if you want to get compensated more, right, for a, skills that are in greater demand, then, you know, go get a coding certificate. You know what I mean? And start doing something like that where we need or we need where companies need that skill. Sure. I mean, that's definitely true. But one, how many people have access to those resources? And two, how many people do how many coders can they possibly need? Like, uh, well, there we need a lot always... more than we have, I guess. Is what sure. Sure. But like in terms of overall percentage of the economy, well, what what's... percentage of the economy do you want to be just coders? What's your point? Uh, my point is that. We don't need like the, the, the initial example that you set up of ditch diggers and, you know, the, the, the supply and demand of them is that there, we don't actually need that many people. We don't we don't need to be working as much as we are. You know what? We're getting off track as much as I love this line of questioning. What, what I just want to say is that Ayn Rand looks at it through her own version of cold logic. Uh, that says, you know, like, oh, the only, only the people who own the resources, they're the whole engine of the economy. They're what starts everything. And that is just a fundamentally incorrect view of what, uh, a way of viewing the world. In my any any interrogation of that, I think it falls apart because you understand that thing like the resources that, you know, they, these capitalists own are not really theirs. They're actually all of ours. Things like. I'm I will Things say like that. power and land and water. Certainly natural resources are, are, are one, a good example of things that we you know, ought to share, but we still, based on the geopolitical climate, right? And based on private property and public property have, you know, given those parcels out in either lease or sale to people or companies or the public who are using them for whatever means they are, whether it be a public park or to maximize profit or to whatever. Right. Sure. But like if resources if access to resources is what determines your financial outcomes, which is what Ayn Rand says, these people make up the top tier of the economy. Then at the very least, shouldn't we say like that there shouldn't be inheritance, uh, that so, there's a hundred percent estate tax? Like, is that really a meritocracy? No, like, I mean, because that's why it seems like I, I see what you're saying about the, 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 the estate tax. What she would say and what I would tend to agree with is. If you've come up with something that either makes you a lot of money and or benefits society, then part of the rewards of that is the compensation to your future generations, if you so choose to steward it responsibly. So what about the compensation to the future generations of the people who actually did all the work to make that money for those people? Well, That's so what I'm asking. So there's a big difference, right? So someone had you know, offered this to me and the, as advice their parents had given them. Don't play professional football own the football team. And that is like, you can get paid to play in the game or you can work to own or create a team. Does that, does that want to see what I'm saying? That like, there's a different level of compensation for players and for owners. 
and you're you choose what to consume and to participate in that. But I and it's a different kind of education. It's like that rich dad poor dad education. That what I'm saying though is there's only 32 NFL owners and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of football players, and that I mean can be extended out to the rest of the economy. It's just to have a system that says that you must put everyone in competition, that everyone's goal should be to make it to the top of this pyramid. And yet also not recognize the fact that there, that means there has to be by its nature, the bottom of the pyramid is just an, a completely unfair proposition. In my opinion, it, it's it, it completely unrealistic to say, to tell people that they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, even though we know that there need to be, uh, the, mo- the majority of the people need to be those who can't pull themselves up. By well, yeah, I think no, not everyone can be an NFL owner, right? Um, however, there are demands for other things. And I, I, I will move off of Rand because we could go back and forth without getting anywhere, but it, it is good dialogue and banter here. But there are demands for other things that pay you know, beyond living wages. Teaching, for example. I'm not going to say teachers do or don't get paid enough. But like if you're a football player that doesn't make it to the elite level to make it as a professional football player, then you can use your skills where it's where where else people need it or where better to say it is demanded. And I guess the one final thing I would just say is like there's not I don't think a better alternative, the better the next best alternative that is like even remotely possible and or in operation in the world socioeconomic system is like a statist economy where they plan how much is produced and how much is needed, right? And like you've probably read the economic production of a pencil. It's a significant supply and logistics process that like not one person or even I would say a government body could probably state plan it out. So I think because of that, I think you're, you're pointing out some great shortcomings to the system and those in which that can be managed. But the next best alternative is is either unfree or inoperable. Uh, well, I think that's possibly, I, I, I think that's a fair criticism in a sense that, yeah, the, the other best option is a centrally planned system like Walmart or Amazon or China, essentially. Yeah, but not, uh, not even China or, excuse me, not even China or Walmart, man. Like Walmart, like you're, they're, they're not raising the chickens and they're not that, you know, that they sell in their, you know, in their food aisle here. They're producing their, they have a specific piece of the pie. You see what yeah, I'm but saying? They do own quite a bit of their supply chain in much the same way Amazon does. They own the companies, a lot of the companies that make the things. They own the trucks and the delivery service that brings pe- those things to people, the warehouses where things go in and out of. It's, it's vertical integration. I mean, that is the, the byline of most American corporations today is owning, is owning from the chicken to the supermarket. Uh, to an yeah, extent. I think Costco does that with their chickens, actually, in fairness. Yeah, I'm, yeah I mean, it, it makes sense if you're a corporation to want to do that, but it's not like you want to talk about barriers to entry for company for for small businesses. Like, I mean, look no further than that model. And that is, you know, the, that is as much as people want to, you know, pine for a time when capitalists were nice and owners were good and, and businesses didn't just look out for themselves. One, I don't really think that's ever existed. Two, it will always end up this way if there isn't some sort of power trying to push back against those corporations or those, those large you know, financial entities. And to bring it back to what Russ said, that power to me has to come from collective action. I say I disagree with the waging war on producers language and just mentality. I, but, but, you see what I'm saying in this, in the sense of like, when you, by just the existence of calling them capitalists or producers, like they're more than just owners. They're also, there's a different service that they're bringing, either the creation of ideas or, and they, they might not be an owner now. You know, we have a lot of vets that are becoming entrepreneurs. You're talking about entrepreneurs, not just capitalists, right? You're talking about small sure. business owners who, who grow their business. So I, but I will say that it doesn't seem immoral or bad for workers at one Walmart or Amazon plant to organize with another to uh, come together collectively. 
I would I would say that doesn't seem inconsistent unless we don't let like companies fix their products and the, the prices that they sell them for. That's also illegal. I'm not saying it's it doesn't happen in practice, but you see what I'm saying? I, I got to work that one out, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I will say is that those companies view things like collectivizing for better working conditions or in the case of right like a good case is in Long Beach where Kroger shut down three stores where the city council passed a $4 wage increase for all essential workers during the pandemic. And even though Kroger, the corporation has had one of the most profitable years on record because who hasn't been buying stuff at grocery stores this year. Well, that's, them, uh, that's, that's, that's I'm choosing. They, they, let's they shut let's... down those stores, not because they couldn't afford it, but because they viewed it as an act of aggression and they are going to respond in kind. I Any, don't know they, that, they... but let, let's just cut to the, an assumption. If it was unprofitable to operate those stores, were they right to close them? And Actually, you see. can think about it because we have a lot of things that we're going to challenge each other to the next episode. So let's wrap up with questions for our next conversation. But that's a perfect example of if it's not profitable, it's not sustainable. You see what I'm saying? And so but, like, there's got to be some give and take. But it was, as, as the union and management says, the road runs both ways. That's kind of the who is John Galt. They go, you know, now I'm, I'm assuming, I'm assuming, assuming that it became improfitable to operate those stores at that wage. So they go, well, okay. Now, again, if they were doing it as just as an act of corporate aggression to give messaging to other you know, principalities, okay, that's jacked. But, and Kroger sells really cheap ribeyes, that's pretty much all I go there for. So careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what I'll say though, is that like that completely discounts the other side of the equation, which is okay. That may make it unprofitable, unprofitable given the current salary structure where there's, you know, like a million people who work at their home, nice cushy office jobs, you know, maybe check emails Fair. until noon and pull in six figure salaries. Yeah. It might not make it profitable Fair. if that's and how you know you're what? next. We're going to start next episode finishing up on this union discussion with uh, pushing back on uh, with some listeners who have responded and given us some feedback. And then we're going to really tackle socialism, Christianity, and how it applies to us personally. I've still really been wanting to talk how Russ's conversation has impacted you personally, potentially Cyrus. And man, how what I'm reading, I cannot get out of Philippians is impacting me and my even potential career choices. So Let's put a pause on some interviews, at least for an episode or two, so we can really chop up and, and, and backtrack and get some, get some depth on these. So next episode, the very next one, finishing up on unions and uh, digging into the spiritual side of Christian um, socialism and the personal side of it. Yeah, definitely. I, I, we didn't even really talk in so uh, many more notes. recap about the uh, you know comp- compatibility of socialism and Christianity, which I think is was a super fascinating part of Russ's interview, and uh, opened up a lot of of avenues of, of thought for me that are, were beyond the scope of what we talked about in this one. So super looking forward to talking to you about that. Uh, beyond that, you doing okay? Everything all right at the Capo household? Oh, man, I got a lot going D- on, dude. D2. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know what? I'm doing great, actually. Um, I'm very blessed. I'm very, very blessed, uh, Samantha, Cato, and I'm just trying to enjoy today. That's like my biggest task today. Beautiful. Well, what about you, man? I, yeah, I, I'm doing well, man. You know, likewise, I uh, been a busy last couple weeks. Have a little bit of free time today, not too much. So trying to make the most of that while I can. Yeah, like it's getting warm here though getting to be warm weather and that's a, a nice a nice bonus for sure right on you know what I, there's so much like we keep saying so much i feel like i've let our listeners down i think it's probably i hope it's because we're in genuine self-seeking mode here and it is tough to get through this in the depth um, and address the things that are quality and worth addressing so uh, bear with us if you like us or if you don't like us, but think, but like what we're doing, or you think this discussion of love and respect and self-discovery is, is worth promoting, please leave us a review, drop a comment, and or uh, share it with some friends or on social media. Uh, we are, you know, we, we hit the past the 1500 downloads uh, milestone. So big shout out to our producer, Alex, 
you know, um, assistant producer, you know, Andrew, who's helped uh, a bunch. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you to everyone also who's listened so far. Uh, it's kept us uh, going uh, during times when, you know, we weren't sure if we were going to uh, keep doing this. So it's been super great to hear from a lot of you guys. And if you, even if you don't like us and you just want to dunk on us, share us. <laughs> on social media. Yeah. No press, uh, bad press, that, I guess. Right. That, that works too. So either way, I uh, look forward to talking with you soon, Chase. All right, dude. I love you. Love you too, Chase. But principles are eternal. And this has been a contest over a principle. In this contest, brother has been arrayed against brother, father against son. It is for these that we speak. We do not come as aggressors. Our war is not a war of conquest. We are fighting in defense of our homes, our families, and posterity. This has been Cross of Gold. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'd like to thank Sant Invictus for producing our intro and outro songs and uh, look forward to seeing you next time.